Take your Bibles and turn as quickly as you can to 2 Samuel chapter number 13. 2 Samuel 13. Well, he said, I fed him, and he referred to his weight. I was afraid he's going to say that I fed him until he was fed up. Uh, but uh, he didn't say that, and I'm glad about that. And wasn't it, isn't it a thrill to be here? Uh, you know, I'm glad to see a few Christians here that looks like that you are not, um, uh, you're not fed up with Christianity. And uh, I'm glad that you are doing well that, and wonderful, wonderful. Um, how many is glad to hear a preacher just get up and tell it like it is? Raise your hand. That's, that's what I do. I've been doing that for nearly 60 years now. And uh, the world has changed, but I've seen no purpose in changing. People have not changed in the sense that they're still sinners. They still do wrong. They need to be preached at. They need to be loved. They need to be led. They need to be fed. And that's what I do. But tell it like it is. Uh, my sister lives in Lexington, North Carolina. And there's a public newspaper there. And my sister clipped an article out of it and sent it to me. And I taped it in the flyleaf of my Bible. So this is the actual article. There was a court case. And the court case... Uh, involved, I don't know what the case was about, and I don't know what this person was, they were trying this person for, but um, a Mr. Williams was a prosecuting attorney. It gives the names of the people involved here. A Mr. Williams was a prosecuting attorney, and a Mrs. Jones, an elderly lady, was called to the witness stand. And when she came to the witness stand, Mr. Wills, Williams, the prosecuting attorney, said, and I'm taking up reading here what it said, uh, do you know who I am, Mrs. Jones? And here's what Mrs. Jones said, quote, Why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and quite frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot when you've not got the brains to realize that you'll never amount to anything but a two-bit paper, paper pusher. Yes, I know you very well. Well, the prosecuting attorney was shocked and stunned, it says here, and not knowing what else to do or say at that point, he turned and says, do you know the defense attorney? She looked across the room and says, oh, yes, I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster also. He's lazy. He's bigoted. He's got a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anybody. His law practice is one of the worst in the entire state, not to mention the fact that he's cheated on his wife with three women, one of which was your wife, sir. Yes, I know him very well. Well, the defense attorney nearly died. At that point, everybody was stunned in the courtroom. No one knew what to say. And the judge motioned for both lawyers to come to the bench. And when they did, he leaned over and he said, if either one of you ask her if she knows me, I'll put both of you in the electric chair. <laughs> I think that's what you call telling it like it is, don't you? And uh, she was holding back nothing. Buddy, I'm telling you, they, they got enough evidence from just the introduction than they would have gotten from most trials, wouldn't they? I'm open to 2 Samuel chapter number 13, and I'll begin reading now in verse 1, number 1. When your pastor was a teenager, and his father pastored the church here in Milwaukee, he said that I preached this message in the church back when he was a teenager. I don't remember that, but I'm sure he's right. And uh, he said uh, hardly any, no one, if anyone, uh, would remember this message. And he, but the way it happened was, I asked him, I said, have you ever heard me preach anything you wish I would preach here? And he mentioned this one sermon. So I said, well, I'm not sure I can get clearance to preach that. I'll ask the Lord, but if I can, I will. And so here we go, 2 Samuel 13, verse number 1. Everybody stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. Can you hear me all right? Usually people don't have uh, trouble hearing me. Uh, I've got a, a, a shrill uh, voice tenor voice, and most everybody can hear me. Uh, one fellow on the back one time said, we can't hear you 
fellow in the front said, he can have my seat, buddy, I'm telling you. Second Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse number one. Here's a simple, basic message that all of us need. If I had one message to preach to young people, it would be this. But if I had one message to preach to their parents, it'd be this. If I had one message to preach to anybody, it'd be this right here. Second Samuel 13, verse number one. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou being uh, the king's son, lean from day to day? Will thou not tell me? So Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed and make thyself sick. And when thy father come to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat and dress the meat in my sight that I may uh, see it and eat it at her hand. So Amnon lay down and made himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said to the king, I pray thee, let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. Now look up at me. Let me paraphrase the rest of the chapter here. So that's exactly what the king did. He sent his little Tamar, his little daughter. She could have been as young as 14 or 15 years old. He sent her down to tend to her brother, Amnon. And the little naive thing, who in the world would have ever thought any danger in going down to help your own brother when he's sick? But when she went in to fix a little something for him to eat, uh, she went in and set it down on the table beside the bed. And when she did, he reached up and grabbed her arm and committed an atrocious sin. And the little thing begged and, and did no good. And after he had sinned against her, uh, she ran out of the house, and she had an outer robe on her uh, over her regular clothes. It was an outer robe that the king's daughters who were virgins were appareled with, showing they were virgins. And when she came out of that house, she ripped that outer garment from her and threw ashes on her head. She threw ashes on her head because that's a symbol of humiliation. She'd been humiliated. She wrapped that, ripped that outer garment off of her because she knew she could never in honesty wear that garment again. She was no longer a virgin. She had been defiled by her own brother. She went down to her Absalom, uh, her brother Absalom's house. The last part of verse number 20 said, so Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. Now, she remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. That means she never got married. That means she, she never fell in love. That means she never had children. That means she was robbed of all the normal joys of marriage and home and children that God intends for all young ladies, most all young ladies, to enjoy. And uh, she didn't get married because she could not think right about boys and men. This experience with her brother had so marked her mind at such a young, tender age that she, she couldn't stand to be around boys or men. So she was robbed of these natural joys. Now, uh, Absalom is standing in the front room, and when he tries to comfort her, and he's being false about it, he says, don't regard this thing. He's just your brother. It's no problem at all. But he has a green-eyed hatred and murder in his heart toward his brother, uh, Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. And before the chapter is over, he takes his servants and the threshing instruments and drives them through the body of Amnon and murders him because um, he raped his sister. Then to keep from being put to death under Old Testament Jewish law for murder, he flees for his life. That leads to his rebellion with his long rebellious hair hanging in the forks of a great oak tree and three darts sticking through his heart and he dies early. So here's the boy that raped the girl is dead, murdered. Here's the guy that, that murdered the boy. He's dead, three darts sticking through his heart. And here's the girl that was defiled, and she's ruined for life. And when you look at this whole dark scenario, and you wonder how in the world, what started this domino effect and this trail of horrible, horrible sin? It comes down to five words. And I'll bring out these five words here. 
in starting in verse number two, Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Why? For obvious reasons. Number one, several reasons. Number one, he had never done anything like this before. And number two, it was his sister. But the next five words gives us the key and the secret as to why this atrocious sin actually took place. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very subtle man. And by the way, if you'll notice carefully there, uh, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, this made Jonadab his first cousin. So he and his first cousin were bosom buddies. They were very close. And this close friend said to him, what's wrong with you? Something's bothering you. He says, I want my own sister Tamar. And this very subtle Man, Jonadab said, I got a plan that you can get what you want. And through that plan, Amnon raped his sister and then was killed by his brother. And then his brother died. And it comes down to those five words in verse number three. But Amnon had a friend. He thought it hard to do anything to her, but Amnon had a friend. He would have never committed that sin in a million years, but Amnon had a friend. You are right now, or you soon shall be what your friends are. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you and praise you for being with us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the word of God, a lamp unto our feet and a light into our pathway. I pray, Lord Jesus, you'll bless us now as we preach the Bible, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Amnon had a father. Amnon's father was King David, the sweet singer of Israel. Amnon's father was the one that said, As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Amnon's father was the one that says, uh, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Amnon's father was the one that said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And many of the other beautiful psalms. And when he thought about his daddy and who his daddy was, it stopped him. And he would have stayed stopped. But he had a friend. But he had a friend, but he had a friend named Jonadab, and Jonadab was a very subtle man. Amnon had a reputation. Amnon had a name. The Bible says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor more than silver and gold. It takes a lifetime to build a good name, but you can tear one down. Into Look, you know something? I've been preaching nearly 60 years. I started preaching when I was 18. I'm 76 now. And I, I've been preaching almost 60 years. And I'm not pretty and never have claimed to be a good preacher, but I have a good name and I've worked hard at it. But I could stop at the wrong place between here and the motel I'm staying in for 15 minutes this afternoon and take a drink of the wrong thing or see the wrong thing or patronize the wrong place. And this preacher over here, nor no other fundamental preacher in America would ever want me back in their pulpit again. It takes a lifetime to build a good name. You can tear one down in 15 minutes. And when he thought about his name and he thought about his training, it stopped him and he would have stayed stopped. But he had a friend. But he had a friend. But he had a friend. Now he's got a little sister. He can't live a normal life because Amnon had a friend. Uh, now Amnon himself lays in an early grave. Because he had a friend. He had a friend named Jonadab. Jonadab was a very subtle man. Amnon, uh, now uh, his brother Absalom murders him, and now he dies over it because Amnon had a friend. Amos 3, 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? The obvious answer is no. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Go down yonder to jail this morning and see that girl, 25 years old, with bruise marks up and down her arm where she popped a needle last night, sold her body to get enough money for another fix so to keep them screaming her head off and say, tell me something. Where did it all start? And here's what she'd say. Ah. I was only 12 years old, and I had this friend at school, and she knew this guy. But she had a friend. She had a friend. She had a friend. Go down yonder and see that old boy got thrown the slammer last night for throwing a barroom stool through the window. And say, How, what was your first drink of anything alcoholic? And you know what he'll say? Oh, I wasn't but 11 years old, and I went over to my friend's house next door, and his mom and dad was gone, and he said, come here, let me show you something. And he opened the refrigerator, and inside the refrigerator was a tall can of Budweiser. 
Buddy had a friend. Buddy had a friend. Buddy had a friend. Buddy had a friend. You are right now. You soon shall be what your friends are. You show me your friends. I'll show you who you are. You show me your friends. I'll show you who you soon shall be. You show me your friends. I'll show you which way your heart is looking. You show me your friend. I'll show you your direction in life. You show me your friend. By the way, by the way, this is not just good for young people. This is good for everybody. I had a, look, I had a deacon's wife that came into my office one time, and she said, and listen, the woman had been a blessing to our church. She had teenage children. And she said, Preacher, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm depressed all the time. I'm not happy. I've lost the joy. I don't, I don't know what's my problem. I looked her square in the eye and said, Have you been criticizing me? She said, What? I said, have you been criticizing me? I said, would you like me to tell you how I know you've been doing it? She went like this. I said, I know you've been doing it because I know where your park, a car has been parked three and four mornings a week. I know what, I know what woman you've been drinking coffee with. I know who you've been spending a lot of time with. You could not spend that much time around that woman without getting a critical spirit. That woman is the most critical, judgmental, harsh cruel, criticizing female that I've ever known in my life, and you've been hanging out with her. You couldn't have stayed with her that long without catching her spirit, and that's why you've been saying the things you have about me. And she sat there and admitted I was right. She got right with God and made a break with that woman and got away from her, and her spirit got right, and her joy came back, and she served the Lord. Who are your friends this morning? You hang out with happy people, you're going to be happy. You hang out with depressed people, you're going to be depressed. You hang out with critical people. You hang out with people who say, I don't know why we have to do the things we do around this church. Why do we have to do this? And why do we have to do that? And why do they have to vote on this? And why did they, have to, and why did they do this but not that? And why did they do that but not this? You hang around people like that, you'll be just like that. You'll be just like that. But you hang around people and say, man, isn't this a great place? Isn't this a great church? Man, think about our pastor, Brother Hoover here, and how, well, praise the Lord for him, and praise the Lord for his spirit. And his, he's clean as a hound's tooth in every way, and he's a chip off the old block of his dad who loved the Lord. Not every church has a pastor. Like, isn't it wonderful? Aren't we glad to be here? Say amen. amen. You hang around people like that, you're going to be that way. You're going to be that way. You are right now, or you soon shall be what your friends are. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Parents, who are your friends? I'm speaking to women in this room right now. You cannot cut the rope and really sell out to God with full dedication because you've got a sister that thinks you're already a nut for coming to this church. Yeah. She already thinks you're a nut for coming to this church. She thinks you're a nut for dressing the way you do and not dressing other ways. She don't see anything wrong with a lot of things you see something wrong with because you're anchored to a good church with a good preacher in the Word of God and you're taught right and led right and she thinks you're a nut, she thinks your preacher's a nut and she thinks your church is a nut and you, you, you still come, you haven't quit. But I'll tell you what, you can't really fully surrender to the Lord because she is a governor on your life. You're afraid she'll hear what else you're doing now, like going out and actually winning souls, telling people about the Lord, visiting people, teaching a class. You're teaching in that church? Yeah. Who are your friends? Hey, fellas, who are your friends? Do you have friends at church and then a separate set of friends when you get on the golf course? When you grow, and these friends on the golf course, they don't say praise the Lord, God is good, you know, like your friends at church. You draw back to hit a line drive and crack your ankle instead of the ball. You don't say, oh, glory to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord. <laughs> but you say something else because you have two sets of friends. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? Uh, by the way, who, who are your children's friends? He said, I don't know. Well, are you a nut in any other department or just that one right there? Who are your children? You ought to know who your children's friends are. You ought to know who your children's friends are at school. You ought to know who your children's friends are in the neighborhood. I had a preacher friend moved into a neighborhood. He said, we just moved in our house and, and down a street, houses along the street. A little 13-year-old girl from next door came over and said, Pastor, can, can your daughter come over today and play? He said, um, Honey, we, we're going to be gone today. 
the next day. Pastor, can, you were gone yesterday. Can they come today? Honey, we're tied up today. We're going to do some things. The third day, Pastor, now look, this third day in a row, we, we, want, your, we want your children to come over to our house. He said, honey, we, we can't come. Finally, she got him cornered. She said, well, just why can't they come? He said, honey, I didn't want to tell you, but you got me in a corner. They won't be coming over because of several reasons. Number one, you don't wear enough clothes. And number two, you listen to rock music over there. And we don't agree with the beat, the message, the tempo, or, or anything about rock music. So they won't be coming, honey. Now, she went home and told her mother that. And that went over like screen doors on a submarine. You know what I mean? I, that really, he, but I'm telling you something. I like what he said. He said, I want to win my neighbors to God, and I'd like to win the whole neighborhood to God. But I'll let the whole neighborhood go to hell before I'll send my children to hell over it. And I say amen. Amen. Our first responsibility is to our own families and to our own children. And what do I have to preach to my neighborhood if I let my children go to the devil? What do I have to say to them anyway? And so, who are your friends? Who are your children's friends? How about it? Um, in the neighborhood. Uh, I had a preacher friend. He came in. His boy had been a straight-A student. He was about a seventh grader, eighth grader. And he came in one day. He picked up a report card. He said, honey, what has happened to his grades? I mean, he's not flunking, but he, he was a straight-A student. What's happened to him? She said, well, he's got a friend down there at school. And ever since they've been hanging together, his grades have been going down. He said, I just dropped the report card down. He said, I went and marched straight to the school. And the well, first thing I did, I, I called his, the boy's daddy. He said, look, our boys are not working good together. And it may be more my son's fault than yours. I don't know that. All I know is grades are going down since they've been hanging together. And I'm not faulting anybody at this point. But I am telling you this, they need to make a break. And I want you to know what I'm doing. And I'm doing this as much for you as I am for me. They're not working good together. And so this is the end of it. And he went to the principal and said, if, you're, if they're ever seen together, let me know. And he had a talk with his son. He said his grades went right back up. The boy came back in line. You can't beat the system. You're not going to hang out with certain people and live a certain life. You're just not. You're just not. And by the way, this goes for everybody. Somebody said, people often say to me, uh, Brother Brown, you're the same preacher I heard 50 years ago. How did you manage to say the same? There's a secret behind that. I have selectively picked the preachers I listened to and emulated and hung around. There, there's preachers I don't hang around. I don't like their spirit. Some of them are too liberal. Some of them are too soft. Some of them are too mean. There's fundamental preachers I don't hang around. Brother, listen, as you can already tell from this message, I'm as straight as a gun barrel. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm, I'm about as bold as that woman was I just read to you about Mrs. Jones. I mean, she told it all. And that's how straight I am. But I'm going to tell you something. The spirit of a man will sustain him. And before I get done here this morning, I want you to know two things. I want you to walk out of here with these two thoughts in your mind. That guy ain't afraid of nothing. And he clipped my tail feathers. But on the other hand, he cares about me. He loves me. He don't hate people. He loves people. He's trying to help people. That's why he does what he does. He's like a skillful surgeon that knows that what he's about to do is going to cause pain, but he knows if he don't do it, somebody's going to die, and he's out to perform surgery. And that's what I want people to think of me. There's certain conferences I don't go to. There's certain meetings I don't go to. There's a lot of good Southern Baptist preachers, but I don't hang around them. I don't listen to them because I don't want to become a Southern Baptist. I'm an independent, fundamental, premillennial, temperamental, Jesus-loving, devil-hating, heaven-exalting, hell-dethroning Baptist preacher. And I've been that way for nearly 60 years, and the way I've stayed that way is that's the kind of crowd I've hung around. I don't think I'm so smart that I can, you know, somebody said, oh, well, uh, call the name of some of these neo-evangelical preachers. I uh, said, so, well, I, I, you know, I, I, they have so many wonderful things to teach, no doubt. But on, in the way to get those wonderful things, some of the other habits and patterns about them is going to rub off on me, and I don't want to be that way. So who are your friends? This thing applies to everybody. 
It applies to you, Mom, you, Dad, you, Grandma, you, Grandpa, who are your friends. You know, somebody says soap operas is out and Facebook is in. I'm not sure about that. I don't keep that close to it to even know. But I know this. I know some of the biggest problems I had about soap operas in my church were not young girls or even middle-aged ladies. It was the older women. They were the most rabid on, on soap operas I had in my church, and I scalded their height. I can get teenagers to dress right before I can get older women to dress right. Yeah, they ain't going to change. They're stubborn. Always been this way, and I ain't changing. Well, you may not, but I ain't going to quit preaching about it either. So we're even. I'm just simply saying, who are your friends? Who are your friends? Um, I'm thinking now of a young lady that came to our church and got involved, and boy, did she get involved. She had been a student at University of Iowa. She, hit the, she was a brilliant, young, beautiful young girl, and uh, 22 years old, I guess. She hit the ground running for God. We starred her in live animal Christmas plays. She was used. She was a beautiful soloist. We used her in every way, and then she got engaged to a fine young man that I knew very well, and she came in to see me, and she said, Preacher, I got the awfulest situation. What am I going to do? She said, before I got right with God, before I got saved, student University of Iowa, one time, one time, one time, not two times, but one time, I went out with a guy I knew I should have never gone out with. And as a result of that night, I have been diagnosed three times with a certain social disease. And it's contagious. And now I'm going to get married. And he's most likely going to get it. Do I tell him? I said, yes, you tell him. He's going to know anyway. And if you tell him ahead of time, she said, but I'm afraid he'll break up with me. I said, I don't think he would, but he might. But if he, if he does, you owe it to him, and you owe it to yourself. He'll be bitter at you for the rest of your life if you marry him without telling him that. That's not fair, and that's not right. She told him. He married her anyway. But I'm saying I'll never forget the anger, uh, the, the anguish of that girl. And she didn't have a friend very long. And she didn't have a long-standing relationship. Just one night, one time, one wrong deed, and she'll pay for it the rest of her life. Who are your friends? Who are your friends? Who are your friends? Who are your, who are your children's friends? <laughs> uh, you know, I'll tell you what you can do, Dad. You can take that little fellow, your, your, Pastor, you can take your son. You can sit him on a car seat beside of you and you say, Son... First name slipped me. What was his name? Huh? Silas. Say, uh, Silas, there's things you play with, and there's things you don't. And one of the things you don't is an automobile. Now, if you're going to race, get on a go-kart. Maybe a dirt bike. <laughs> but if, if you're going to race, don't get behind the wheel of a car. You'll endanger your life and the lives of other innocent people out there. It's not fair, it's not right, and it's not worth it. And he can obey, and he can have the best attitude in all of this world. But when he becomes of age, and the first time he gets a car by himself, and he's with some of the good boys of the church, <laughs> and they're going out here, out in the country, to have, a, have a, a picnic, a church picnic. But the boy in the back seat says, hey, Silas, put the pedal to the metal. Let's go down the road. Uh, what was that? Drop the hammer, man. You got a clean machine. It's a straight road. Let's see what this crate will do. You mean speed? Do we mean speed? What do you think we're talking about? Oh, my dad. Oh, we got a daddy's boy. I bet he goes home, knits and crochets with mommy too, don't he? Come on, man. You act like we're a bunch of daddy haters or something. We love our dads as much as you love yours. You act like it's some kind of sin or something. Even the manual says you ought to blow the carburetor out now and then. Let me tell you something. You put what this man right here has built into his son for 16 years up against 20 minutes with that kind of a friend, and I wouldn't be surprised if the power of that friend don't cause everything that man has done in all these years to crumble and fall in a pile because the most powerful force on planet Earth is a friend, somebody close to you. Hey, let me, let me give the best example of the world I know. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them perfect. And Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam was not. The Bible's very clear about that. But when Adam walked up and saw Eve, Eve had been deceived and she had taken the forbidden fruit. 
she offered it to her husband. Now, here stands a man that's not deceived. He sees what's happened. He knows the consequences. If I don't take that apple, I'll walk with God, but I cannot walk with that woman anymore. We'll be different because she's already eaten of it. She's got the carnal nature. But if I take that apple, I won't be walking with God anymore. Which side won? You know the answer to that question, don't you? Which side won? It's the most powerful force on the face of planet Earth. Who are your friends this morning? What people are there in your life that's close enough to you to have some influence on you? Well, I'm here to promise you one thing. You better make sure it's the right kind of people. I'm not talking about being a Pharisee. I'm not talking about too holy to speak to anybody. Ladies, if a woman comes in that back door that's a known prostitute, you women that love the Lord, you ought to take her in. You ought to love her. You ought to make her feel welcome here. And uh, watch her like a hawk around your husband. But you ought to take her in and, and, and let her know that this is a church where, where Christian people dwell. And, and, and you were a sinner too one time. Maybe not in the depth she was or maybe so. But God forgave you and saved you. And you want the same thing for her. And she ought to know that. But she's not the kind of person you're going to be drinking coffee with for the next six months. And I'm just saying this, I'm not talking about being a holy, I'm not talking about you that are in public school going back to school and says, I can't hang out with you anymore. No, I'm talking about you speak to everybody, you be nice to everybody, but when it comes to that person, young people that you invite over to your house or to spend a weekend or a night, you better dead double dead make sure that it's somebody you want to be like because you're going to end up and be like them. Who are your friends? Who are your friends in the home? And by the way, it's worse than you think it is right now. Some of you parents, it's worse than you think it is right now. You know, uh, Dick Seaton is a man started pastor school years ago. And first year he, he went and said, teach me how to build a church. He went to California and built one of 1,500. And then the next year more people came, more people came till the great pastor school in Hammond for those legendary years uh, went on. But Dick Seaton was preaching, and he preached several revivals in my church. And Dick Seaton told this story. He said, I was preaching in a church. I'd never been with this pastor before. And he said about halfway through the sermon, there was a 25-year-old, sharp-looking young man, handsome young fellow, on the back pew that had been listening very intently. And all of a sudden, he turned sideways, pulled his knees up on the pew, clapped his hands together and looked straight up with starry eyes. He said, when I saw him, I knew he wasn't there. I knew he was adamant. I knew he wasn't a whole biscuit. He said he did that three times while I was preaching. He said it was real distractive. He said I knew he was mental. I knew something was wrong with him. And he said as soon as the service was over, the pastor come walking up and said, Brother Seaton, did you see that kid on the back row? He said, yeah, man, he's got problems, don't he? He said, yeah. He said, who is that kid? Brother Seaton asked the pastor, he said, my son. He said, your son? He said, yes, sir. He said, Brother Seaton, there's never a boy ever grew up in this church with a better attitude than that boy. He was everything any father would have wanted a son to be. Never an ugly spirit, never a bad attitude, lived right. He got up about 16 years old, and he got a friend. And when I realized he had a friend that wasn't right, I told him, son, this boy's not, he said, Dad, I know what you're going to say, and you're exactly right. And he's got two other friends, but I think I'm going to help them. I think I'm going to help them. So he started hanging out with them. You don't help the wrong crowd by hanging out with the wrong crowd. And the pastor told Brother Seaton this. He said, Brother Seaton, he was out one time with these boys. He'd been hanging around him quite a while, but he was out one time with these boys, and they talked him into taking LSD one time. He said he took LSD one time. It had a reaction on him. It left him that way, and the doctor said he'll have the brain of a three-year-old as long as he draws breath on planet Earth. Would you like to know why? Because he had a friend. He had a friend. He had a friend. You all right now? Look, hey. 
These are true stories, folks. <clears throat> a girl, a pastor's daughter. I didn't know the pastor. This pastor's daughter started sitting with a girl in church, had a rotten attitude. And the pastor's wife dealt with her gently, honey, this girl's not ready. She said, here's what she said to her mom and dad. She's not as bad as everybody says she is. See, the girl had already affected her attitude. It happens quick, parents, real quick. Well, finally, they had to turn the thumb screws down on her, and they told her, said, the next time you're caught even talking to that girl, we're going to discipline you. If we go to prison over it, we're going to discipline you. Well, about three nights after that, she disappeared with the girl. Both of them disappeared at the same time. Some days later, they hadn't found them. Everybody was frantic, all points bulletin, everybody looking for them. Pictures, you know, up everywhere, missing. Underage, both of them underage. They didn't know whether the girls were dead or alive, had no idea. And after some days, they were laying on their pillows, this pastor and his wife, soaking their pillows with their tears, and the phone rang. And an officer from out west in a western says, is this reverend? So, yes, yes. Do you have a daughter by the name of and called her name? Yes. Is she alive? She's alive. Reverend, she's alive. We've got her here at the police station. Uh, she's taking a little drugs. Actually, she was standing on a street corner, hysterical, screaming and acting crazy. I don't know whatever happened to the other girl. I don't remember that part of the story. I don't know that I was ever told. But they said, somebody called and said, you got a crazy girl on the street corner down here. And said, we went down and took her and brought her in. She was hysterical. She'd been on a little drugs. And said, um, we didn't know what to do with her. She was afraid she'd hurt herself. But we didn't have anybody in the drunk tank. Now, the drunk tank is where they put these drunks when they bring them in a padded-type cell to keep them from hurting themselves till they dry out, you know. And so they said, we didn't have anybody in a drunk tank, so we put her in there. And we've done, we've, we've run a reference on her. And from all we can gather, Reverend, you folks have a pretty nice family out there. Now, she's not done anything we just got to book her for. So if you'll come out here and get her, we will release her to you. He said, I'll be there. They drove most of the night. I'll never forget this story. Early the next morning, they walked into that jail. And the officer said, come, we'll show you where she is. They went through two of those hydraulic doors and then those big steel keys opening another door. And they came to this drunk tank. It was a large cage type thing, almost like a bird cage rounded at the top. Like, much like a chain link fence except a little more sophisticated. And this little girl was 15 years old. She weighed less than 100 pounds. She was of the skinny variety. She had crawled the side of that cage all the way up until it turned back at a 45. And she was hanging there. She didn't see them when they walked in. And the pastor said, when we walked in, she was hanging there on the side of this cage, and she, here's what she was doing and how she was doing it. Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh, God! It's worse than I thought it was! It's worse than I thought it was! It's worse! It is worse than you think it is right now, Mama. It's worse than you think it is right now. You see, I raised seven children, and I'll tell you something. Pastor Hoover, it's not, and you haven't found this out yet, yours is not old enough, but it's not always easy to know exactly where your children are spiritually. But there's one surefire way I could always tell who they want to sit with, who they want to call, who they want to be with, who they want to have over to the house. I could look at who they wanted to associate with, and I knew where they were spiritually. You are right now, or you soon shall be what your friends are. I'll tell you what, preacher, you can have a family come to this church from Idaho that's never been in your state before. They can walk in back there, and they can have a 15-year-old boy with them, and when he walks in, you'll look at that family, and the first thing that runs through your mind is, well, I wonder who they are spiritually. I wonder if that boy is a dedicated boy or if he's a goof-off. But I'll promise you this, in less than 30 days, if he's not sitting with his own kind, I'll eat any pew you got in this auditorium. And he'll know his own kind. If he's a spiritual boy, he'll bounce off the carnal boys like a hot potato. If he's a carnal boy, uh, if he's a spiritual boy, he'll, he'll hang with his own kind. 
you are right now, or you soon shall be what your friends are. It's worse than you think it is right now. I tell young ladies, who's your boyfriend? See, that fella comes into church. You see him with a shirt unbuttoned down to their navel. Like that's supposed to excite somebody. Got three hairs sticking out right there, you know. They're really not his hairs. He super glued them there off his German Shepherd dog. You know what I mean? I'm talking about that guy. Britches so baggy, it looked like he'd drop a Mack truck and the seat of him got so many chains around his body you could tie up a herd of bell elephants. Young lady, I said, young ladies, is that your boyfriend? Yes, pastor, and I know he's got problems with his mama, and he's got problems with the law, and he's got problems at the school, but I'm going to help him. I said, young lady, you're not going to help him. He's going to help himself. That's what he's going to do. He's going to leave you sitting high and dry with a little baby to raise by yourself down at your mom and daddy's house. He's going to fix you so no decent boy will look your direction. And he's going to be off gallivanting around after some other little stupid thing like you were to mess up their life like he did yours. I believe in telling it like it is. I didn't come here to make enemies. I've made some enemies in different places, but I didn't want to and didn't intend to. But I'll tell you this right now. I believe we ought to tell the truth. When we get up, we ought to speak the truth and tell the truth. Who are your friends? I tell young men, who's your girlfriend? Is she that girl that goes down here to swim pool, strips off and not enough clothes on to clean out the barrel of a 10-gauge shotgun? And I've heard boys, well, Pastor, yes, she does that, but that doesn't bother me. I thought, you little nut, if that don't bother you, don't shake my hand. You're as odd as a $9 bill if that don't bother you. I don't trust any man that says that kind of thing don't bother him. I've been clean all my life. I'm 76 years old. I can't look at that and think Sunday school thoughts, and no other normal man can do it either. Say amen, fellas. It's exactly right. Who's your girlfriend? Who are your friends in the books you read? Who are your friends in the music you listen to? Frank Garlock said the music you listen to affects your philosophy of life even if the music doesn't have any words to it. Who are your friends on the television, television, smell-o-vision? Who are your friends on chat room, Facebook? Yeah. Who are your friends? Who are those people that influence you? In a cl- you better wisely pick your friends because you're going to become exactly like those. Your friends are a governor on your life. Let me give you this. Two boys went to pick a girl up one night. We showed what she was. This is a true story, folks. Her daddy came out of the house before the girl did, walked up to the car. Summertime, window was down on the driver's side. It was two guys. And, and the daddy said, uh, boys, I know why you're here, but you can go ahead and leave because she's not going with you tonight or tomorrow night, next week, next month, or next year. So you can just go ahead and leave. And they glared at him, backed out the driveway, put the pedal to the metal, as I said a while ago, threw rocks all up in his yard as they scratched out, went down the corner of the road, mad as fire, turned around, came back, rolled the window down. They didn't see him, but they hoped that he heard them when they screamed obscenities at him, yelled curse words. They were mad. Whoa, they were mad. They turned around. They made three passes at the old man's house, boiling mad, cussing him, yelling obscenities, went downtown cruising the fours, mad. Their plans had been changed. There was a boy walking along the sidewalk, bored, just walking along, bored, a good boy, a boy that didn't cuss, a boy that didn't drink, and a boy that wouldn't have been caught dead with a girl like that, but a boy that didn't know how to pick his friends. They pulled over the curb and said, hey, Joe. Now, I don't know that Joe was his name. I'll use that name. I've got a son named Joe, so I'm not picking on you if your name's Joe. They said, hey, Joe, let's take a ride. He said, where are we going? He said, well, we don't know. We thought we knew, but our plans got changed. Get in. The boy on the passenger side got out. Joe got in the middle. They drove down the road. The fellow doing the driving decided he'd make one more pass at the old man's house. They slowed down in front of the house. I think it was a beautiful home. They slowed down in front of the house. two or three big evergreen trees out in the front yard. He rolled the window down. Hey, you old blankety-blank. Filthy language. See, what they didn't know was the last time they did that, they had done pushed that daddy across the line. 
he was standing behind an evergreen bush with a 30 alt 6 And that time, that last time when they dropped the pedal, scratched out after cussing him, he stepped out behind the bush, raised that rifle, pow, right into the back glass. Guess who died? You guessed it, the boy in the middle. They said it made a little hole about the size of your thumb, and it blew a whole section of his heart out right here. He dropped in the floorboard. He was dead when he hit the floorboard. And out yonder in a cold, cold, lonely grave some morning, uh, this morning, lies a boy. I don't know what they put on the tombstone, but if they had put the truth, here's what they would have put. Here lies Joe. He was a good boy. He would be alive. But he had a friend. 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 Let me tell you about my friend. They pulled a bag down over his head, and they beat him in the face, beat him in the face, until when they took that bag off, his visage or his outward appearance was so marred, he didn't even look like a man. He didn't even look like a man. I can see him now, his eyes bulging and hanging. I can see him with his teeth beat completely out of their sockets. And when they pulled that bag off, by faith, I saw him look at me and say, Larry, I'm doing this because I want to be your friend. I saw him at Pilate's whipping post when they took the cat of nine tails, that little short stubby handle this long and nine strands of leather running out the end with bits of bone and glass in each strand and every time they'd come down on his back it wouldn't hit and come off and hit and come off like a a whip because it had this bone and metal and glass in each strand it would hit and hang and they would jerk it and it would hit and hang and they would jerk it no wonder the bible says they made long the furrows on my back Unger's Bible Dictionary said it wasn't uncommon for a man's insides to be laying on the ground after the Roman scourge. How our Savior ever survived it, we don't know. And then they laid that old rugged cross on that naked back with the bones exposed and those nerves up there dancing. And they laid that old splintered cross right on that back. And he fell beneath the cross. I followed him a bloody mile up Calvary's hill. And every time he'd take a step, he'd catch his breath with the blood draining down his neck. And he said, Larry, I'm doing this because I want to be your friend. I watched him as he stretched his sinless hand out. And I saw an ugly old Roman soldier set a nine-inch spike right there and drove that spike through his hand. And every time he would grimace and he'd say, Larry, I'm doing this because I want to be your friend. I watched him when they raised the cross up and dropped the cross in a hole. And the Bible says every bone in his body was out of joint. I heard him go, oh, and when he caught his breath, he said, Larry, I'm doing this because I want to be your friend. I saw him have to pull up because he couldn't breathe. They said that the actual cause of death of, of crucifixion in most cases was suffocation along with the loss of blood and so forth because you can't breathe. And he'd pull up to catch a breath, but he couldn't hold it. He's too weak, and he'd drop. And every time he'd drop, I'd hear those leaders and tendons and muscles and bones tearing and breaking and bursting. And I'd hear him say, Larry, I'm doing this because I want to be your friend. I saw the sky get dark. And out of the darkness, I heard him say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I knew why God had forsaken his only begotten son. Because God the Father cannot look on sin. And the Son of God was taking my sins in his body. And even though he was perfectly holy, God looked down from heaven and saw my sins on Jesus and punished Jesus for what I've done wrong. And as a rock and roll singer in amateur show business, I said, live, die, sink, swim, come what may. I'll live for Jesus day after day. I'll live for Jesus. Let come what may. The Holy Spirit I will obey. And I'll live for Jesus day after day. And I cut the ropes and went for God. Got saved when I was 18 years old. And it's been a wonderful life. And if I had a thousand lives to live over again, I'd live it the same way. I'd live it the same way. 
starting with trusting Jesus Christ. The only thing I would change is, instead of getting saved at 18, I'd got saved at 8 or younger. <laughs> That's the only thing I'd change. It's a wonderful thing to have a friend that you can trust that won't mislead you, that will never fail you. Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away. You need a friend. I'm speaking to people in this room. You had a friend that absolutely you'd have staked your life on, but they failed you, broke your heart, crushed you. But I dare you to trust Jesus and ever find him short in any way. I dare you to trust Jesus and see if he ever fails you. No. And if you don't know him this morning, you better trust him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. It's exactly 12 o'clock, and uh, I'm going to ask you to do this. Every child of God that's in this room right now and saved, and you know you're saved. Most of you are members of this church. Some of you may not be a member of this church. But whether you're saved or whether, you, or whether you're a member or whether you're not a member, everybody in this room that's saved and knows you're saved, that, sa that will say this, I would have to lie to you, Pastor Brown, to keep from raising my hand right now and letting you know God spoke to my heart while you were preaching this morning. God spoke to my heart, and I want you to pray. For it. it may not even be anything I preached about, but God spoke to your heart. If that be the case, with heads bowed and eyes closed, get your hand up. Hold it up. Hold it up all over the room. There's 15 or 20 or 25 or, or more. Or more than, if I counted, I promise you it would be over, more than 25, Pastor, with their hands up. You can take your hands down. In just a moment, you know what you ought to do, don't you? Let me ask this question. How many are in this room and you'd say, Pastor Brown, I do not know for sure if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. I wish I did have that assurance. And I need a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I need a friend like that. Would you pray for me? I need to trust him as my Savior. Will you raise your hand right now? Nobody's looking. Yes, God bless you, ma'am. There's an honest lady. Somebody else, slip up that hand. I, I, don't, I don't know for sure if I'm going to heaven when I die. But I need a friend like that, and I need somebody I can trust. Get your hand up. Hold it up. There's been one lady. How about others? Will you do it right now? Real quickly. Quickly. Will you do it? Now, let me just say this to you, Christian. Could you expect this one to come and be saved this morning as a lost person if you as a Christian would not come and get on the altar and say, Lord, you spoke to me this morning. Now I'm going to speak to you, and I'm going to make a promise to you, and I want you to help me, Lord, to fulfill that promise. And you come, and everybody that raised their hand, don't you look around and see if others are coming. Of course there'll be others coming. I believe that a lot of people will be coming, but that has nothing to do with you. If you're not willing to come down here, just if you wouldn't be willing to come alone, don't come at all, because you wouldn't live for God anyway. You don't have enough power to blow the fuzz off a peanut. You wouldn't live for God anyway. But as soon as you hear the music, I want everybody to stand and all those that raised their hand to come. And ma'am, I want you to come and we'll have somebody take the Bible and show you how to be saved right here on the front. And we want you to come this morning. Lord, work in this invitation. Thank you for the privilege to preach the Bible. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll bless us now as we set out to obey God in this one service right here. And bless these 25 or more that have raised their hand. I pray every single solitary one of them will start moving as the invitation is given and come kneel at the altar and talk to you. About